or in Romans 3 tonight, Romans chapter 3. Last week I was away in Wisconsin leading a, a workshop for preachers and teachers with an organization called the Charles Simeon Trust. Uh, some of you will know about Simeon Workshops since uh, we've hosted one of those workshops here uh, each year for I think the last eight years or so. Even if you're familiar with those though, you might not know that um, this year there are 85 workshops taking place. Half of those are in North America, half are international. Over 4,000 participants were involved in those workshops last year. Um, if you don't know, each workshop spends about 20 to 25 hours in the course of a few days in one specific book of the Bible, thinking through that genre of scripture and how to approach it well and how to handle it rightly. Uh, we're trying to grow in the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word. And in my experience, there's been nothing like uh, a Simeon workshop. Uh, it's not like a seminary class that goes through a book of the Bible. It's not like a homiletics class. It's not like an inductive Bible study that a church might host uh, in a Sunday school class. Uh, because of what it is, and I won't go into what it is, the pace of growth is unparalleled uh, for those involved, especially for the first-timers. Uh, and guys are forever changed by it. Uh, and I was one of those guys. I was one of those guys for a first time back eight or nine years ago. And uh, I continue to be blessed even though I, I lead them uh, occasionally and even a few per year. Uh, I'm blessed every time I get to be a part of them. In fact, it's not only encouraging to see guys grow in the course of a week, but it's astounding to think through the, the exponential trickle-down effects that are taking place in the course of these workshops, uh, and with the workshop to workshop now 85 per year. Uh, you think through the trickle-down to uh, individual sermon preps and sermons reaching you know, anywhere from 50 to 3,000 people on any given sermon, and you think of that multiplying over years and years, and only heaven knows what actually is taking place. Uh, but what I do get to see um, when I'm in there and up close is encouraging all by itself. Now, why do I bring that up here and now? Well, now is as good a time as any for me to tell you about um, God's exciting work uh, in, a, in a place and in a ministry that you might not know much about. It might encourage you to uh, pray for the work of Simeon Trust, uh, maybe even pray for the two or three that are happening this week. They're um, just finishing day one. They go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so, so there are you know, several of those going on this week. But, but I also bring it up because... Uh, the workshop I was at this last week in Wisconsin was going through the book of Romans. And so I've been swimming in the book of Romans. Uh, yes, 1 Thessalonians is still on my mind, but I thought tonight we would uh, turn to one of the book of Romans' most important paragraphs to think on that before we eat and drink uh, from the Lord's table this evening. So look at Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We'll stop there. Martin Luther said of this paragraph, it is the chief point, the very central place of this epistle and the whole Bible. Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor at Southern Seminary, he said, this is the heart of the epistle, probably the most important paragraph in the letter. D.A. Carson called this paragraph the center of the whole Bible. And Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, I think now deceased, he said, it is probably the most important single paragraph ever written. So some high accolades. And indeed, it is power-packed, it is dense, it is multi-layered. In short, it tells us how and why God saves. And let me remind us, before we go any further, let me remind us of a few things, which I'll circle back to at the end, but we need to think about them right up front. That we all as Christians need reminding of the gospel and its particulars. We as Christians never graduate from the gospel. We, we never move on from it. We keep standing on it. It's less like an instruction manual that tells you to do X on page two, and then when you do it, you turn the page, and you do Y, then Z. It's less like that and more like a sun. S-U-N, around which a whole solar system just keeps orbiting. And upon which, on those planets, people like us just keep gazing and observing. The means of our salvation, that is what Jesus did in his death and resurrection for our salvation, that will be the theme of our song in heaven forever and ever. And we will never tire of it. We will never yawn about it. We'll, we'll never say, yeah, I heard that one before. We'll never get used to being saved by God's grace like this. And the Lord's Supper is for this very purpose, as you know, for the purpose of remembrance. Remembering. We need to remember. We're a forgetful people. And so any, if any of us are remotely tempted now after the reading of this paragraph and even unmoved by the high accolades of great New Testament scholars about this paragraph, if any of us are thinking, I've heard this stuff before, I, I know this, this is Gospel 101 things, and really I just need help with my marriage. Uh, you may need help with your marriage, and you, you may need a good book on marriage. 
But you, you, you need the gospel. You need this gospel. You need this tonight. Uh, we better not think that this is just gospel 101 stuff. It's not gospel kindergarten stuff we have here. This is, this is gospel calculus. So let me suggest four hooks on which to hang our thoughts. Just a couple words per hook. The first is righteousness revealed. That's what we find in verse 21, righteousness revealed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, and then something negative, apart from the law, and then something somewhat positive, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Before we think about the contents of that verse, just notice the first couple of words, but now. Transitional words, right? But transitional of what? What what is it transitioning from and transitioning to? Well, it could be that this phrase, but now, is a logical transition within the letter of Romans. And if so, then the reader... We can't do this tonight, but if you've been reading straight through from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 20, you've been waiting for this with bated breath. In fact, let me just show you a couple of the mile markers in the text that came before this. So look back to chapter 1, just a couple of verses there. Paul introduces this idea of the gospel, verse 16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written in Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 18, there's a turn. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So verse 16 to 17, the gospel's introduced. In verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, there's one theme. Paul is meticulously, relentlessly, methodically making the case that everyone is under the wrath of God apart from Christ, everyone. That everyone is sinful and guilty and under God's just judgment and that judgment upon guilty sinners like us is righteous. It's his righteousness that's being revealed even in the wrath of God against unrighteousness. And then it culminates. Look at chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Right before our passage starts, just picking up in the middle of verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped, shut, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then our passage begins, but now. A different kind of righteousness is being revealed. So you can see it could be a logical transition. It could be a literary kind of transition within the book of Romans. But actually, more likely, this is a chronological transition. But now, this side of Christ, but now that Christ has come, there is a kind of righteousness that has been revealed now 
That was hinted at before, as it says, the law and the prophets, they all bear witness to it. As Jesus said in John 5, these testify about me, or as he said in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Yes, it was, it was witnessed to in the Old Testament, but the righteousness of God that he's talking about now, that Christ has come, is manifested apart from the Old Testament law system, the Mosaic Covenant, that system which exposed sin but couldn't lead to salvation ultimately. That's the righteousness now revealed. And later on in the passage, we'll see why that chronological distinction, but now, is important. But secondly, there's a righteousness received that's talked about in our passage. And it's received through faith in Jesus. It's for all who believe. Follow the logic. The passage began with a righteousness now revealed. And what is this righteousness of God that's now revealed apart from Mosaic law but witnessed to throughout the whole Old Testament? Verse 22. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The real problem anticipates the only possible solution. Notice the universality of both. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, past tense. All fall short, present tense, continue to fall short of the glory of God. There's our problem. It is a universal problem, and that universal problem is met with a universal invitation to Christ's righteousness received simply through faith or belief or trust. And you see, it has to be received through faith, belief, or trust, and not by earning it because no one can earn it. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his character. It's his honor. It's his reputation. We all fall short of it. We all miss the mark is literally what the Greek says. And don't think miss the mark like we're aiming for a bullseye, like an archer, and we got the yellow circle instead of the red circle in the center. This is instead missing the mark like we're jumping off the cliff of the, 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 the coast of California trying to get to Hawaii. And some get 15 feet away from the shore, and some get 10 feet away from the shore. But we've all utterly missed the mark. Universal guilt. The bad news of universal guilt is met with the universal hope that anyone can get in on this. All who believe. That means that the condition for this righteousness received is not according to race. All have sinned. All fall short. It's not according to effort. All have sinned. All fall short. It's only based on Belief or faith, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. Or as he'll say in verse 24, it's a gift 
It's grace. Verse 25, it's received by faith. Faith means believing that it's true, but trusting in it as well for ourselves. As I often say, it's putting our eggs in that one basket. And that one basket is Jesus Christ. It's based on belief or faith and trust specifically in Jesus Christ. Now we'll come back to faith in just a bit. These build upon one another, and so we can move on to the third point here, and it's redemption achieved. It's achieved by Jesus' death. And that's how we can receive it through faith and not our own works. Verse 24 They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now that's thick stuff. There are actually three metaphors for salvation used there. Redemption is just one of the three. One of the metaphors is uh, an economic one. Another one is a cultic one. And when I say cultic, I don't mean pertaining to a cult. I mean pertaining to a a sacrificial system. And then another of the metaphors is legal or judicial. Let's take those each one at a time. And, And it's worth our thought on this, our careful thought. Because when it comes to terms related to salvation... I think many Christians are quite used to them. Maybe not propitiation. You scratch your head and you think, I think I heard the definition of that once, but I forgot what it is. But, but words like redemption, salvation, reconciliation, even justified, justification, sometimes I think Christians hear those and think it's just salvation. They're all the same. It's like a, it's like a bowl of salvation soup letters and well it's this one this time and well no they're all unique they're all special so this redemption that word is an economic word picture grace is through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus it says in verse 24 now redemption is a pretty foreign concept in our culture I think there was a Wesley Snipes movie where he was pretty concerned about getting back redemption Other than that, you don't hear it too much. But redemption in Roman or Jewish first century times, in Bible times, that would have been been real common. It would have been very familiar with it. You see, in those days, when someone got into financial trouble, in days before bankruptcy laws, in those days before someone could maintain debt without any trouble, When someone got into financial trouble, they sold themselves, even perhaps themselves and their family members, into the slavery of someone else. It's like indentured servitude, so it doesn't have all of the angles and implications of um, the kind of slavery our country has known, but nevertheless, it was a thing that was far from ideal, something you wish you didn't have to go through and something you wish you could get out of. Redemption. Redemption steps in. Redemption is a payment made for your freedom. Imagine a wealthy uncle comes to town and finds out that you have had to go into slavery because of your debt. And he pays your debt and you go free. 
hallelujah, what an uncle. Right? You're thankful. You're, I mean, just feel the weight of being indentured with no hope of getting out. And that's the spiritual picture here. Make the connections in the metaphor. Our sin has put us in debt to God and we are in bondage. We are in trouble and we are unable to earn our own freedom. Remember Romans 1, 18 to 320. It's all one thing. We're all sinful. We're all in trouble. And God is just and righteous to hold us accountable for our debt to him in sin. But Jesus paid the price. He is our redemption. He paid for our sin, our guilt, our judgment. He took it upon himself. Galatians 3 uses redemption language in relation to the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And having paid the price for us upon that cross, he now sets us free. Not free to go badmouth him, not free to not any longer represent him or to do his bidding. No, free, free to the utmost, meaning that we're actually free to serve him and follow him and represent him. That's redemption. Then there's this word propitiation in verse 25. That's the cultic or sacrificial metaphor. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means a sacrifice by which God's wrath is appeased. It's not merely expiation where our sin and guilt is removed. It is propitiation, which is the removal of his wrath. And if you think wrath, why is God angry? A judge? Sure. A punishment? Okay. Maybe I get that. But why does he have to be angry about it? Well, here's where comparisons to our earthly categories don't quite match up. You see, in our judicial system, even though this is here talking about the sacrificial system, let me just borrow from the judicial system that we know. In our judicial system, if it's been found out that the crime has been against the judge's own daughter, that judge would have to recuse himself from that specific case because it's all too personal for him. He's, he, he can't be the one who has been wronged. He has to be an impartial judge who's submitting himself and everyone in the courtroom to the standard of a law that he didn't come up with. And all that's the opposite with God. We've sinned against him, his law. It is personal. He is angry. And he will execute his justice in righteousness, in perfect righteousness. Just because it's personal doesn't mean he will be partial. Wrongly so, no. So back to this word of propitiation which is the removal of God's wrath against our sin and our guilt. you got to know some background here. In the pagan world of the first century, people would offer sacrifices to various gods to appease them, to make them favorable, 
to have them not be angry. And so if you were going out to sea on a voyage, you would perhaps make a sacrifice to the god of Neptune, the god of the seas. Remember the story of Jonah? They're in a deadly storm, and the sailors want to throw Jonah overboard as a sacrifice to whatever god has apparently gotten real angry with Jonah. Well, with that sort of background in mind, be astounded at what it says in verse 25, that God put forward Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. God did it. We couldn't make the propitiation. We, we couldn't sacrifice something. We couldn't throw something over and get God appeased. God had to do it for us, and he did. That's why some have said that the gospel is being saved from God by God. So there's similarity and also difference between this and that old covenant system of sacrifices. Of course, this is the same language of Leviticus 16 and 17. This is day of atonement language. This is covering language. This is the language of the sacrifices that took place in the holy of holies. And yet proof that that system would never be the answer is here. God put forward Christ as the propitiation because we couldn't put forward anything else for ourselves that would actually work. We needed something better and more real and true than any of the Old Testament sacrifices. We needed the perfect lamb, and we needed God to make the sacrifice for us, and he did. Well, that's the propitiation term mentioned here. And there's the justification term, justified, that we find in verse 24. Justified. It means to be declared righteous. Here's our legal or judicial word picture. This is a judicial verdict. And here God justifies, it says, notice the words that follow, by grace as a gift which we don't think of in legal terms. A, a judge declaring righteous, let alone innocent, or never mind just innocence, but even more, righteous by grace, just as a gift. You see here, God declares righteousness on a people who are fundamentally and undeniably unrighteous. Again, that was Paul's point. Romans 1, 18 to 320. He seemed to almost never tire of pointing out everyone is guilty, in trouble, and God is just and righteous to bring justice to bear on their guilt. And now we're justified declared righteous as a gift. It's just grace. Now, Roman Catholicism says that that is legal fiction. They say it's impossible for God to declare righteous what is not in and of itself righteous. 
or at least a little righteous, or at least heading towards righteousness. But what does the Bible say? Well, again, justified by his grace as a gift. Or think of what came before. Romans 1, 18, 3 to 20. Or we could read on just a bit. Look down at verse 28 of chapter 3. We hold that one is justified, that is declared righteous, by faith apart from works of the law. Or even more explicit, look at chapter 4, verse 5. It's to the one who does not work, like work your way to God, to one who does not work but believes. See the contrast between work and believe? To the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is simply counted as righteousness. This is what we find in Philippians 3 where Paul talks about not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith or trust or belief. Or as he talked about that great substitution in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it is for our sake that he, God, made him Jesus to be sin or to bear sin, him who knew no sin. He didn't do any sin. He made him to bear sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not become in this slowly evolving way as he puts a little bit of righteousness in our hearts. And like yeast, it sort of expands and grows. And that's not what this is talking about. This is righteousness as a gift on account of Christ. We are declared righteous by God, not because we are at all righteous. There are none righteous, no, not one. It's simply based on someone else's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness is perfect righteousness. And anything less than that is a legal fiction. This just God will not say something is righteous when it is not righteous. And it's not that we could ever get righteous for him to declare us righteous. It's that Christ was perfectly righteous, and in faith we receive that righteousness as a gift. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in all our sin. He sees only the perfect righteousness of his son. And so he rightly says, just, righteous, settled. We'll never be righteous enough for God to declare us righteous on our own. And yes, there are passages like 1 John and the book of James, which speak of, speak of Christians demonstrating their true faith in outward actions, in work, in love for brothers, and things like that. But those passages are clearly dealing with the demonstration of faith, not the not the partnership with faith that leads to salvation. Those passages, like Romans 6, where Paul goes on eventually, they speak of the results of true salvation. They're not adding another condition that precedes the declaration of righteousness from heaven. And this is what we're going to sing in just a little bit here. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that is the sweetest version of myself, my, my best. Instead, I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand in all other ground, including my best efforts. They're all just, it's all sinking sand. We'll also sing, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. But spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. So stack it up. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, it's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Justification in verse 24 comes by his grace as a gift. It's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And it's because God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, whereby his death appeased God's just and holy wrath. And this is what we're trusting in. This is what we believe. This is what we're leaning upon. This and nothing else. We're not trusting in ourselves, our efforts. We're not even trusting in our trust. There is a way to think that you're expressing faith to God and really you're trusting in your faith. That's not the same thing. Faith is not positive energy. It's not, it's not thinking positively. No, faith is the vehicle. I think it's Tim Keller who says, faith is nothing more than the reaching out of empty hands. We're not trusting in the intensity of our faith. We're not trusting in even the consistency of our faith. We're, we're trusting in the object of our faith. We're, we're trusting in the thing to which those empty hands reach out. Jesus Christ, and specifically his death as a payment for sin and guilt. Tim Keller speaks in terms of a record of validation. Think of like how a resume works. A resume, um, it says what you've done. No one puts on their resume, you know, also their rap sheet, right? You know, the number of times they lost their temper with their dog or their kids or their wife. No, you, you put your best foot forward. You hope that that resume expresses qualification for the job. You hope the resume opens doors for you, and rightly so. But here is a different kind of system. All other world religions have that kind of system. Write down your resume and submit it to God, and, and hopefully you've done enough. But this system is... Trust that Jesus turns in his resume for you and the doors fling wide open. 
B.B. Warfield, the old theologian, they called the Lion of Princeton, he said, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This isn't true of us only when we first believe, it's true after we've believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with believing nor does the nature of our relationship to him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. And in God's economy of things, that is righteous and just. So now fourthly, there is righteous justice displayed. And I have righteous justice displayed because in the Greek, it's the same Greek word. Our English translations have righteousness and justice. You'll see it in our verses of verse 25 and 26. Here it says God saves precisely the way he does to show what kind of God he is. He's a righteous redeemer, or you could say he's a just justifier. Picking up in the middle of verse 25, all this, what came before, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance in times past, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. You see, there's the chronology. There's the, but now that Christ has come, something has changed. What's changed? This. At the present time, it would be shown that he was the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. you got to understand the dilemma behind these verses. The dilemma is Old Testament salvation. You say, well, what's the dilemma? I thought God was a saving God. Yes, but how? Take King David, for example. He had his good days. He was a man after God's own heart. But read 2 Samuel 11 where his sins multiply and multiply and multiply and his guilt snowballs and snowballs and snowballs and he hides it and hides it and hides it. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse from adultery to theft to murder. And then he one day is confronted and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love. That's all he's got. According to your love, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Can you picture this? A book, a ledger, a record of wrongs. They are many. They are grave. They are all in bold. His most recent are his worst. And he's just hoping God will just spilled the ink jar on the whole thing. He says in verse 7 of Psalm 51, just purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. In Psalm 32, he talked about how when he was quiet about his sin, he, he, he got restless, there was turmoil in his bones. But when he confessed his sins to the Lord, the Lord forgave them. Well, where's the justice in that? What kind of righteousness is that? 
That doesn't work down here in the Albuquerque Municipal Court. A God who says, I'm feeling nice today, by grace, dismissed, good guy, go free, as long as you believe that I can do that, because I can. Well, I don't know if that judge will finish his term, but he sure won't get reelected. That's not just. But God made a payment. And here's where the analogy breaks down, right? Because it doesn't work. You might, have, you might have heard the analogy before of the judge taking off his robe and walking to the other side of the bench and him saying to, to some bailer or clerk, you know, put me in jail instead. That doesn't work. It, it doesn't. So, so let's not press the analogy. Let's not press the metaphor. But in God's court, in his wisdom, in his perfect wisdom, he's decided that a substitute payment works. And he put forth his son as the substitute payment for our guilt. And that was needed because there are all kinds of Old Testament saints for which there hadn't yet been payment. It's as if Old Testament forgiven saints, that is, before the cross, those who were saved, it's that their account was stamped, I owe you. Payment still required. But the cross put a new stamp, paid in full. And for every believer on this side of the cross, their account has already been stamped, paid in full. And the gavel has been struck and court is adjourned. He's just and the justifier. Can you imagine a God who is one and not the other? Can you imagine a God who is merciful, but he's a joker? He just sweeps things under a cosmic rug. He just is capricious, and he lets some go free, and others he punishes severely. What kind of God is that? That's not our God. That's not our God. And neither is he a just God, exacting justice, getting everything right, making sure every payment is made, no mercy. Our God is merciful, and justly so, righteously so. What a God. And so I wrap this up with three words of appeal to you, three R words one is respond if you have not. Respond to this. Hear this as both warning and invitation. Warning that without Christ, you're in trouble. Read Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. You got to get that right before you will ever get anything else right. Respond to the trouble by putting your trust in Jesus, in him alone, in what he did on that cross. Respond if you have not. Secondly, be reassured, Christian. Be reassured. You can have confidence in this gospel. 
This kind of gospel, this kind of just gospel, this kind of righteous gospel, this kind of unchanging verdict, this, this kind of stamp upon you, not based on you? Be reassured. And if you need fresh assurance this evening and think you're too far away to be assured this evening, well, perhaps you can be assured in faith that just as you trusted in Christ's righteousness perhaps years ago, you can trust in Christ's righteousness afresh this evening, and perhaps you'll be saved for the first time, and perhaps you will be reassured once again as you look outside yourself for faith and for, assur- for assurance and confidence in the gospel. And a third R for us Christians is that we rehearse or, or remember or ruminate. I could keep going with R's. I didn't look up in the thesaurus, the R section today, but you know I can go for a while. Revel. Rejoice. As I said earlier, we all need regular reminding of the gospel. Christians never graduate from this gospel. This will be our anthem for all eternity in heaven, and we will never tire of it. The angels and saints who are there now are beating us to it, and they are loving it. And in the meantime, let's join them how we can. Let's... Do you know that old hymn? It's a little hokey, but I love it for some reason. I looked it up today. It's by Kate Hankey. Horrible last name, Hankey. But she was a friend of William Wilberforce, and she wrote this hymn. I love to tell the story to those who know it best. You hear that? People who already know it. I love to tell the story to those who know it best. Those who seem hungering and thirsty to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Let's rehearse these things, not just tonight. But always, not just in this life, but in the next. Not just with these saints, but one day with a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. Let's never get used to being saved by God's grace. May the gospel always be not page two of the instruction manual, but the sun of our solar system about which we just keep spinning and spinning and gazing and living.